You're listening to Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Justine Paradise, and today, as part of our series in the North Country, we're starting the show in Berlin. Walking around Berlin. Look at these little strawberries. Now, this is the biggest town in North Country. This is the biggest what? This is the biggest town. This is like the city of the North Country. Berlin. A few weeks ago, producer Jimmy Gutierrez and I took a walk around the city. Indeed, the biggest in the North Country. In 2018, Berlin was home to 10,200 people, which is over a third of the population of Coas County. And yet, as Jamie pointed like, out... I appreciate it. like everyone we've walked by has greeted us. Yeah. Took a look and a hello. Um, let's cross the street. I want to see if I can get a better angle. One of our first stops was the biomass plant. Oh, that's the smell. You can smell it. It smells like... Um, like mulch, but like pine mulch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's like pyramids of of mulch. And then like a conveyor belt into this big industrial, like power plant looking building. As always on Word of Mouth, the reason we spent our morning traipsing through the streets of Berlin started with a question from a listener. This one from Rick Vandepol in Sandwich. Well, I was really wondering about how willing, ready, and able folks in the North Country are to shifting from a timber-based economy to a more diverse tourist-based economy. 20 years ago, Berlin did not smell like mulch. It smelled like sulfur, because on the site of what's now the biomass plant and its pyramids of mulch, once stood the Brown Company pulp mill, which employed thousands of workers over generations from the mid-1800s to the early 2000s. Its closing had ripple effects from very basic sensory experiences like smell to the loss of job security, shuttered businesses, an overstock of housing, and a deeper psychological shift in identity. After all, Berlin's tagline is the city that trees built. A lot of empty storefronts. Yeah. Man, it does feel like every other building is boarded up. I don't know if I expected that. I kind of thought that was maybe a stereotype. Small rural town, economically depressed. Well, like, how economically depressed is the North Country? It's like, maybe this feels like a familiar story. So as we look at Berlin and its environment to consider if people are ready to transition from timber to tourism, we're also wondering if that's even the right question to be asking. Pamela Flam is Berlin's community development director. She grew up in Milan on what she calls a gentleman's farm. It was a gentleman's farm. You know, one cow, one pig, a few chickens. Just enough for like fresh milk exactly. and eggs. <laughs> right. That sounds lovely. Yeah. It was lovely, actually. It was a great childhood. I really did have a really good childhood growing up here. When Jimmy and I sat down with Pam, we asked her to draw us a map of the city. Yeah, I am the worst artist, though. <laughs> well, it's not about, it's for the radio, so no one's going to see it. <laughs> this is so funny. Um, so, so the river is really what kind of brought everybody here. There is a drop in height on the river from just north of us to just south of us of about... 200 feet or so and so that um, drop provided a great asset to harness electricity and power to power sawmills along the river so that's really what started the whole thing so we'll put the river here hmm. after the Androscoggin 
Pam drew the mill with its stacks, the churches, the neighborhoods for workers and their families near the mill. It was the grandparents on the first floor, the parents on the second floor, and maybe their kids and new families would hit the third floor. There were neighborhoods organized by immigrant groups, the Norwegian neighborhood, Irish Acres, those that attended the Russian Orthodox Church, and then the upper-class neighborhoods for the mill managers, where up on the hill... The view is just incredible because you really do see the breadth of the community. Um, You see Mount Washington, you see the mill complex, you see the river, you see all the homes. People used to kind of joke about the fact that, you know, it was the mill owners looking down over all their employees. And so that's kind of a hierarchy. And that may be true, maybe not true, but it was really probably the best view of the presidentials down the valley. Well, that's how Berlin was. When someone got in the mill, they worked there till they retired. Their kids got in the mill. That's a lot of families were just mill people. This is Maureen Patry. She's an entrepreneur. I've been here 37 years in business, uh, born here and raised here, lived here all my life. She owns Maureen's Boutique on Main Street and Vintage Junkie on Glen Ave in Berlin. Maureen started her clothing shop in the 80s, right out of high school, with help from her dad. She convinced him that Berlin needed better clothing offerings for younger women. Well, what kinds of styles were in the store? Uh, oh, back in the day, it was like gunny sacks, like uh, prairie look, kind of like high neck, lacy stuff back in the 80s. And uh, uh, the baggy jeans were in and prairie skirts kind of were in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then sometimes those styles just come back around. It was a lot busier. It's To me, it was. Um, there was a lot of stores. Main Street was full all the way from one end to the other. Well, what's Main Street like now? Well, now we're down to only a few stores of a lot of empty buildings. Um, we went through a time of a lot of fires, so there are some vacant lots of just, you know, grass now where there were buildings that burnt. Yeah, we could use more businesses, but I find at this time there's not a lot of places to start a business because some of the buildings that are here are really deteriorated. Maureen's family has been in Berlin for generations. Her father owned a construction company for almost 50 years, and when he was a teenager, he hauled gravel to help build a laboratory on Mount Washington. Maureen's kids are grown up now, and they live in town. Her son's a firefighter, her daughter works at the boutique, and her granddaughter Carly, who's 12 years old, often walks into town after school to help out. My mother has a big house. We have, uh, she has a barn, and we have barn dances in the, for the kids in the summer. We have backyard barbecues, uh, get-togethers at my son's house. He has a big yard, and the kids can play. In the spring, we do the maple syrup, so we all get together there. Maureen says it's this quieter pace of life, sense of safety, and of everyone knowing each other, and her family, that are big parts of what's kept her around. And this sense of community and social resiliency, it's commonly shared throughout the North Country. Most Coas residents trust their neighbors and plan to live in the county for at least the next five years, according to a study from 2017 from the University of New Hampshire. So, historically, Berlin is a community and a company town. But it has not been a tourist destination. Because we had the mill, and it had a smell from the, you know, the sulfur smell. Um, Most people think of Berlin, oh, that's the place that smells bad. So really, it wasn't for tourism. Uh, They go through Berlin and head more to Colebrook or um, to the Balsams back in the day. That was the tourist destination, I think. So yeah, tourism is not new. We like to talk about how the outdoor recreation economy is a new wave for New Hampshire, but it's really not. 
This is Sally Minikian. She lives in Shelburne and works for the Conservation Fund, a national organization that focuses both on conservation and rural economic development. The North Country has always been a place where the urban folks of Massachusetts and Rhode Island and New Jersey and even D.C. have come north to recreate. And to, In the 1800s, they were sent here by their doctors to escape the dirty air. Sally first came to the North Country to work for the Appalachian Mountain Club and then as a reporter. I'm in New Hampshire, born and raised, and I've made co-ops my adopted community. I've I found connected with and identified with the communities north of the Notch, a little bit grittier, a little bit smaller. So while Berlin has never been a specifically tourist destination, six miles to the south, Gorham had a paper mill, not a pulp mill, which meant less of a smell. It was also located right on the Grand Trunk Railroad, the funnel for tourists visiting New Hampshire's mountains and grand hotels. So Gorham looks a lot different than Berlin. It's got the hotels, the restaurants, the businesses welcoming Appalachian trail hikers. And at a state level in 2017, the travel industry netted $5.5 billion in direct travel spending, according to a study prepared for the New Hampshire Division of Travel and Tourism Development. So depending on how you measure it, tourism is one of the top three industries in New Hampshire, along with healthcare and manufacturing and tech. But what does this mean for jobs in the North Country? Sally showed me a list of the highest employing industries in Coas, Grafton, and Carroll counties. This was compiled in the North Country Council's Comprehensive Development Strategy for 2018. The top employing industries in the report were first, healthcare and social services, and second, government. Third on the list was retail trade, and fourth, accommodation and food service, both industries associated with tourism. But there's a big difference in what people can typically earn in these industries. You know, we have healthcare and social services listed as 77,000 on average per worker. And then you get to retail, it's 34. You get to accommodation food services, 25. On the same chart, the average annual earnings in manufacturing, which is fifth on the list, and the type of job that the North Country lost with the disappearance of the mills, was just over $70,000. Not everyone in the Berlin Mill would have been making that much. But in the early 2000s, hourly workers received benefits, like a company health care plan and paid vacation, which is not true of a lot of typical service positions. Sally says she personally lived on that kind of $25,000 service industry salary when she first moved to the North Country in the 2000s. I had debt. I had educational debt. I think it's nothing near what people experience now. <laughs> and I was living in housing that was provided by my employer. So it's like my overall, you know, draws are pretty low. But... I wanted, and I wanted to visit my family in the southern part of the state, and I couldn't put gas in my car. I knew I couldn't make the trip down. So it's like, and I had a fair, I had a fair amount of wealth privilege and educational privilege, and also just had grown up in an environment where I was told I could do anything that I wanted. So for me to be, like, for me, that wasn't vulnerability. That was normal. Sally's saying she had a cushion, a safety net. You know, and I also had that confidence that things were just going to work out. And um, without that, $25,000 isn't enough. You know, you're, you're vulnerable. And, um, you know, so how do we, if this is a component of our economy, it can't be the only one. And I think we know this regionally. It's like the tourist economy is not a silver bullet. What is the, the shadow footprint that a mill has on a town? Like, how can you still see it? That's a great question. Um, has anyone talked about the mill mentality yet? It just means so much. It's like, it's a cultural symbol. You know, it's, 
It's a tangible thing that can point to the reasons why the city was founded, to process trees. And that's just such a huge core of identity. When the mill closes, you know, it's, it's just, it just means so many things to different people. And, um, and it's hard to talk about it openly because people want to rush to solutions. Like, how do we continue to employ people who live here? How do we attract people to live, to, to move here? So, but then, you know, underpinning a lot of that is this sort of community kind of grieving and confusion about what the symbol is moving forward. Coming up next on Word of Mouth, another symbol of the North Country, its past and future. The balsams was a way of life. The balsams. From 1865 until 2010-11, the balsams was a continuous fixture um, in, in the North Country. Stay with us. I grow about 120 varieties, so this is a kind of an apple mecca. It's a wild apple tree that I've grafted in a variety onto each branch. This is a Wixen crab, a little red apple. Next to it is a Rhinet simarenko, which is a green Russian apple. Down there is a Rambo, which is a huge red French apple, and so forth. We grow one that we named uh, Bonkers, and Bonkers is a really crisp, dense, somewhat tart apple with all kinds of character. Every apple has its moment, and I like it in its moment. That's Michael Phillips in Northumberland talking about his apple orchard. You're listening to Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Justine Paradise, and today on the show, as part of our North Country series, we are exploring a listener question about an economic transition and shift in identity. Is the North Country willing, ready, and able to transition from a timber-based economy to a tourist-based economy? But in a sense, this question suggests that tourism is new to the North Country, which is not exactly the case. Because around the time that the Brown Company built its mill in Berlin, something else was also emerging, New Hampshire's tradition of grand hotels. These were hotels scattered across the White Mountains and beyond, including the Omni Mount Washington Resort, the Mountain View Grand, and the Wentworth. In their heyday in the late 1800s and early 1900s, families would escape the city air in Philadelphia, New York, Boston, and even D.C. by the Grand Trunk Railroad, often enjoying the relatively pristine New Hampshire landscapes for the entire summer, sometimes in corners far flung. Tough on the old Prius, getting up these hills. Hear that engine working hard. Yeah, it is both very beautiful, but very eerie. So we're going to the balsams. So evidently, this is like an old, iconic place. A lot of people, when people talk about like, oh, up north there's the balsams, and then there's like Pittsburgh, and like <laughs> people are like, that's up that way towards the balsams. So we're gonna go see it. Wow! <laughs> that went, we went through the notch. Oh, there it is. It was Leslie, after a winding 40-mile journey north up the Androscoggin River and over a mountain pass, 
that producer Daniela Ali and I got our first glimpse of the balsams. It's very regal, I would say. Yeah, it looks it looks like Switzerland. Like, oh wait, uh, should I go that way? Uh, I am from the area originally, so just south of Colebrook. Um, my first career was a logistics officer in the Air Force. I was in England. Moved back here in 2016 and was lucky enough to find a home on this project. This is Hannah Campbell, the marketing coordinator for the Balsams Redevelopment Team. She showed us around the place. The original inn was built in 1865, and by the time the resort closed in 2011, the Balsams included a 400-room hotel, a golf course, ski resort, mountain biking trails, plus a smattering of lakes. It had operated for almost 150 years in the unincorporated town of Dixville Notch, which is also famous for its first-in-the-nation midnight voting tradition. Over the course of its history, the resort passed through different ownership, including the late Neil Tillotson, whose foundation, full disclosure, provided funding for this reporting. And by 1950, you had Mr. Tillotson come in, Mm -hmm. who just felt so passionately about it, and he added the ski area in the 60s and added more of a four-season experience, but it was his passion and his hobby that kept it alive for so long, too. Mm Um, Of course, he did also add the rubber factory. Yep. Neil Tillotson added a rubber factory just behind the hotel. It made balloons and rubber gloves and helped offset some of the costs of the resort, like heating. Also, like, it's a very New Hampshire thing to have a factory and a resort on the same lake, I feel like. (laughs) You know, it's so defined by industry, uh, this state, you know. But since 2011, the seven-story Hampshire house has stood dark and empty. The Balsams is actually often compared to the hotel in The Shining. Hannah fired up the generator to show us around. This is all as it was when the hotel closed. So this right here is a lot like taking a step back in time. It's exactly what it looked like. (laughs) As we climb the stairs, by the dim hallway lights, we can just make out the pattern of the carpet evergreen needles and balsam cones in a color palette of green, brown, and beige. And it's funny, because I have memories of being in here as as a kid, as a teenager working, and um, it hasn't changed. (laughs) I did outdoor recreation, which involved kids camp to um, ski instructing, basically anything outside, which was a great job. The balsams was Hannah's first job when she was a teenager. She's one of those young people that many in the North Country want to attract. And she says that finding a good job like this marketing position at the Balsams is not easy. Upstairs, there are two suites that have been remodeled as examples of what the hotel could be. A little bit different than the old Balsams. The first that we look at is a one-bedroom. It's all plush neutrals, wallpaper, and gray peacock, a view of the mountain and the lake outside. When the hotel's completed, rooms will be available on a nightly basis like a regular hotel, But they'll also be available for purchase, deeded fractional ownership, which is a cousin of the timeshare. Prices vary for these suites, but for 100 days a year, the one bedroom we toured would go for $79,900, and the two bedroom, $289,900. How was the balsams to work for? Uh, It was really, really, really good. You hear about workplaces where it feels like family, and I would say that this was sort of the epitome of it that I've seen. This is Jonathan Dodge. I'm the owner of The Spoken Word, Bicycle Repair and Advice in Colbrook, New Hampshire. Jonathan worked at the Balsams starting in 2004 until its closing in 2011. He ran their bike shop and cross-country ski center. It was really good. 
I can't foresee myself having wanted to to leave. I think that's why you had people there at our annual Christmas parties where people were getting 35, 40, 45 year awards because they had nowhere else they'd rather be either. So um, people just seemed to have a genuine care for one another. People knew what your child was studying in college. Uh, they knew what year they were in the military. They knew your anniversary. Um, they were probably at your wedding, <laughs> frankly. So do you have thoughts on, on this renewed effort to open it? Does it feel different? Oh, well, um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it, yes, I have thoughts on it. Um, I know that the workforce around here would like to see it come, uh, come alive. I'd like for the school children to have a ski program again. Um, yeah, there are certainly things I would like to see come back about it. What will it look like though? We don't know. Certainly the gentlemen in, in charge right now have some grand ideas that would be exciting to see happen. The gentlemen in charge with the grand ideas include lead developer Les Otten. He's perhaps most well-known for his ownership of Sunday River, a ski resort in Maine. We actually ran into him as we were wrapping up our tour. He was in the area with his girlfriend and the dogs for the day, including her golden doodle, Lucy. Um, so what's your plan today? Thank you, Lucy. <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you. Good job, yes. No, down. You guys are going mountain biking with the dogs? Yeah. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna act, we're As we gonna stood go near up. the stream by the old hotel, Les reflected on Henry Hale, the owner of the balsams at the turn of the 20th century. Um, just, the, just the forethought in the engineering, you know, they, they talk about Disney having his vision, you know. Hale, in the early 1900s, before there was electricity up here, there was electricity at the balsams. So they had power and hot and cold running water and, you know, natural air conditioning and they grew in the early 1800s, in the mid-1800s, they grew all the food here. They ran the resort 75 days a year and they employed people 365 days a year for the 75 days that the guests were here in the summertime. Frank Sinatra used to come here. Babe Ruth had his own barber chair that he would, that he had his hair cut in when he was here. You know, can't, that kind of stuff just doesn't, can't walk down the street and find a piece of property that has that kind of legacy. So it's fun to know that you're in a place that has a it has history. But it is not going to be the same balsams. It basically couldn't be. You're not putting the old balsams back together. You're putting a new balsams uh, on, on the map. I caught up with Les Otten on the phone a couple weeks after running into him in Dixville Notch. The plans for the balsams are ambitious. An overhaul and substantial expansion of the ski area, the addition of a gondola, building renovations, a brand new sauna and spa. Yeah, you said, did I see that um, you imagined that you would employ 400 people to start with a potential of 1,500? Yes. Where do you imagine they'll come from? Before we got started, we hired, uh, we did a, a labor forecast um, for our area, and uh, we were delighted to find out that it was predicted that we wouldn't have any trouble finding uh, finding labor. Now, I know that sort of jumps in the face of, of what is conventional wisdom, but there are people who are resort workers all across the United States, and in many cases they need to go different places to go from summer season to winter season. And what really gives us a great advantage on is the fact that we're really year-round. He also pointed to the housing market, the availability of cheap houses after the mills closed and the displacement of the workforce. 
If you ask me, can I go to downtown Colebrook and find 400 people, absolutely not. They're not here. But the indications that we have very strongly is that people will move back to the region. So it, it's extremely easy for somebody to sort of sit across the, you know, the, the fireplace and zing a shot at, at you and say, you're never going to find it. There's nobody there. Where are you going to find your people? Oh, you're right. But what the region needs is a reason for people to move in. Funding the project is an ongoing challenge, and the future of the new balsams is not certain. The resort is actually listed for sale with CBRE, a commercial real estate firm, in an attempt to attract more investors. But whatever happens with the balsams, this tension with balancing history and nostalgia with growth is widespread. I definitely think the you know the balsams is a great project. Really hoping that that kind of takes hold. It would be great for the far north and Colebrook area. So, but I think that's a piece. You know, it's not the end all be all. This is Jim Cochran. He runs the Enriched Learning Center in Berlin, a special education alternative school with courses on everything from computer science to outdoor adventures. In the summer, his business transitions into a rafting company, which allows Jim to employ the same staff year round. Plus, he also dabbles in the housing market, buying old houses and renovating them, sometimes for his staff to rent, but also for short-term tourist rentals listed on Airbnb. Jim says he talks to seasonal workers who get a job in the area, around Berlin or in the White Mountains. For instance, at the Appalachian Mountain Club Lodges, or the AMC, up on the border of Franconia and Pink of Notches. And these workers have to make a decision about where they're going to live for the summer, north or south of the Notches. You know, I was asking staff, like, how, how do you determine where you're going to live? Like, is it the cost of living? What are the things that would impact young people, say, working at the AMC or young professionals that maybe would not with a family and somewhat limited income? So there was a number of factors that came up from coffee shops to green space to, you know, prices is a piece of it, but not everything. Jim says he does observe some workers choosing to live north of the notch in Gorham. But how do we keep that moving? You know, how do we keep that moving north? How do we keep young people or bring young people back that also have business ideas or that want to make it something more than just their seasonal job and, you know, kind of renting a house with four other individuals? I mean, that's important. But once again, I look at it more like how do we impact the economy? You know, and they certainly would as consumers of, of these places, but... It's the difference between like having a fun couple summers and this memory of New Hampshire exactly. versus like raising your family. Family here, absolutely. I think um, we're still going through this process of transformation. Um, I don't think we're completely transformed from this community that once was manufacturing to this community that now is tourism. This is Pam Laflam again, Berlin's community development director. In early 2019, the city hired Kamoin Associates, an economic development consulting firm based in Saratoga Springs, New York. When we talked, they'd planned a meeting for the following week for business owners, including Maureen Patrie. The idea was to find a consultant who'd had experience working with rural communities within the Northern Forest, which stretches across Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York. There are so many communities across Northern New England and Northern New York that are all experiencing pretty much the same thing as us. You know, the mill was the center of their economy. The mill is now gone. 
they have these natural resource amenities, how do we market them and how do we promote them and how do we become different enough so that someone drives 30 miles this way instead of 30 miles that way? How should Berlin develop a strategy for the future? Should the larger region focus on attracting professionals who can work remotely and develop increased access to high-speed internet? Should the city build its first hotel? What about ATVs? Pam says they're looking for data-driven answers. If it does come back and says, based on all the data and what we're looking at in your community, focusing on ATVs is the right thing to do, you should build a hotel, like, then that's what we're going to do, I guess. But I mean, I can't really imagine that it's a good idea, especially after living through the closure of the mill and kind of the decline of manufacturing, that it's ever good to put all your proverbial eggs in one basket. But tourism is definitely a component of it. It's, it's difficult to, we have this idea of like, we, we don't want to just come in and like parachute in and sort of sit, tell the same story, but it's like, right. it, like I can feel it happening. And mm-hmm. like, but like, I don't know if like the stereotype of the story like is, I, I don't know how to like get out of the trap of thinking about like, oh, the mill town and the, um, the new economy and everything. Right. Like, um, I don't know. Do you feel yourself like it is kind of like Groundhog's Day sometime because like, you know, you go to these different conferences and workshops and it is just kind of like, oh, so you used to have this economy and now you're trying out that economy. And how does that feel? Um, but it it's getting less and less. I mean, especially so. I mean, Berlin has um, a population that is older and aging, and so um, those kind of memories have diminished somewhat. And there are a lot of people who have moved to the area who are not from here and don't have that same connection with our history. So they're looking at Berlin how it is now. They're not predicated on like a. a nostalgia kind of perspective. On the day Jimmy and I stomped around Berlin, we definitely saw the boarded up storefronts. But we also saw a lot of activity. It's just too good. Is it like, it looks hand painted. It was a community service day and people were cleaning up the street and planting gardens. It was also the day before prom, so high schoolers were coming into Maureen's shop to get their tans for the big dance. We also stopped by a fitness store that, among other things, was offering cannabidiol or CBD products. This shop was opened by a couple that had moved from San Diego a few years back. At the library, we also ran into a young mother with her two kids. They moved up here for her husband's job at the prison. We did. We check out books every time we come, and we're here at least once, maybe sometimes twice a week. Later that month, I stayed in Gorham in an Airbnb. My host, Glenn Alden, was 76. He'd moved to Gorham to get a fresh start after the 08 recession. You have to go to some place like Austria to find a place as beautiful as this. We've got the mountains, we've got the, the beautiful outdoors, and people want to be here. They come here on weekends, and I live here. It's such a wonderful feeling. I've never been happier. Glenn rents out two rooms in his house. He told me he was getting so many bookings, he'd had to block out weekends just to get some time off. I had to raise my prices because I, I did, had no time for anything but, <laughs> you know, hosting and doing the laundry, making the beds and whatnot, and so I raised my prices. It didn't matter. I would actually like to get another place. Um, I see it, it is that much potential to it. I think that people want, in this area, they're looking for how, how do we how do we move away from, from the past? This is Jim Cochran again. And I don't mean that in a negative sense or not remembering it, but for some people it's hard to, to picture what does it look like next? You go to the other side and it's the Mount Washington Valley. Everything about that side, their tourism, everything is based on that mountain. 
And then when you come to this side, that is not as an identifying piece to this culture and to this side. Well, it's like, it's like what are the symbols that you build your identity around and then therefore build your economy around? around. You know? Right. Well, and I think that that's what we're still trying to figure out. Because I think obviously the Androscoggin River and, and, and the logging was what what was the identifying factor here for years and years and years for generations that was that was the symbol so trees and logs um so i think like transitioning it to whatever it may look like next is it just the whole landscape is it the north country you know the great north woods yeah i i think you have to have an open mind um and it might not always be the the best option or it might not be the one that you would pick right away. But I think that we can't be one dimensional, whether it's alternative energy, uh, whether it's tourism, whether it's creating new businesses here. Or whether that's ATVs. So and we're taking this on Main Street right now. We sure are, buddy. So you got guys my age that when we stop at the green light, we still look for cops over our shoulders. <laughs> Old habits never die. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, especially when you recorded me. <laughs> that story next time on Word of Mouth. That is it for Word of Mouth this week. Today's show was produced by me, Justine Paradise, with Jimmy Gutierrez, Ben Henry, and Daniela Ali, with help from Rachel Cohen, Sarah Ernst, and Corey Princell. Eric Janik is our executive producer, and Maureen McMurray is an Alpine Forest. Special thanks to Dr. Adam Coyle at Plymouth State University, Rusty Talbot and the North Country Climbing Center, the Boys and Girls Club of Littleton, Raymond Daigle in Berlin, and David Koval in Pittsburgh. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions and Scott Gratton. On our next episode in the North Country series, Jimmy Gutierrez dives deep on ATVs. That's next Saturday at 11 a.m. on NHPR, or you can listen online at wordofmouthradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Word of Mouth is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Coming up next, an audio postcard from the Nansen Ski Jump in Berlin, produced by Rachel Cohen. That's coming up right after the break. So I visited the Nansen Ski Jump last month, and it's technically in the town of Milan, but you get there by driving through Berlin. And a man named Peter Higby showed me around. He's the president of the Nansen Ski Club, which is mostly focused on cross-country skiing. So we hiked up to the launching off point of the ski jump. Uh, it's the bottom of the actual jump and above the landing hill. Up here you get the, the feeling of what it must be like to go off that jump and be so high. And you also get a sense of the incredible steepness of the hill that you're aiming to land on. Let's see. Keep looking to see when we get our first view of the big Nansen. 
So the Nansen ski jump hadn't been used in over 30 years until 2017, um, when a professional ski jumper named Sarah Hendrickson went off it for a Red Bull commercial. So when we got to the jump, we walked straight to the edge uh, at the top of the landing hill, and we looked down, and it was so steep. And when you're standing up there, it kind of looks like the ski jumpers could just go on forever because you're you're looking out at this expansive valley and the hill where the jumpers land just seems like it could lead directly to the road. Peter says the physics of this work out so that that doesn't happen, but he says it will need some changes to be used in the future. So this is the landing hill and it is an incredibly steep hill, um, steeper than it will have to ultimately be. We're going to have to do some dirt moving and change the shape of the landing hill before we can have sanctioned competitions here. What you see out here is an awful lot of brush lying down that was just cut last year uh, with help from some of the inmates at the state prison. They came over here for several days and worked to help trim back the brush. When it was built in 1936, it was super important in the ski jumping world because it was the tallest one. It was 171 feet high, made of steel, and it kind of looks like the, the top of a roller coaster. This was, for the longest time, the, the tallest ski jump in the country. In the 19, hope I get my dates right, 38 and 39 Olympic trials were held here and they came from all around to jump off the Big Nansen. Now, the ski jump hasn't been used in competition since the 1980s, but there is an effort going on right now to bring it back, to hold competitions there, and to rebuild a youth ski jumping program in Berlin. The goal of the Friends of the Nansen Ski Club is to hold some kind of ski jumping event there in February of 2020, so that's next winter. But they got excited now, well, maybe we can, we can bring back, the, the, they called it the sleeping giant, bring the sleeping giant back to life again. The original Nansen Ski Club was organized around the Winter Carnival in Berlin, put on, Peter says, by immigrants from Scandinavia who had come to work on the railroad. I mean, we have old pictures. If you stop by the Historic Society, for instance, you can see pictures of people doing uh, snowshoe races with obstacles. They're jumping over big barrels with snowshoes on. And do you know what ski joring is? Where you, you, you're on cross-country skis and you have a, a, a tether to a dog and the dog kind of pulls you around. You're skiing too, but the dog also pulls you. They used to do that with horses down near where I live now. So the Scandinavians knew how to make the most of winter. I mean, that all sounds like a blast. And that was even before the ski jump existed. But in the early 1930s, one man named Alf Halverson had an idea. I mean, he had a lot of ideas about how to make winter fun, but one of them was to bring a ski jump to Berlin. And along with some organizations, he made it happen. Alf was a Nordic skier and a ski jumper, and he was an Olympic ski coach. And his grandson, Scott Halverson, 
is now a large part of the effort to make the ski jump usable again. So while Scott was never a ski jumper himself, he remembers the events held at the ski jump very clearly. It was a very, very exciting time. People came from everywhere. Uh, Berlin was the place to go. There was the winter carnival. There was various activities throughout the downtown. The downtown was virtually closed down. Back then, Berlin had hotels. The hotels were full. They had the carnival ball. And back during the Olympic trials, which were held in 1938, 25,000 spectators show up to watch ski jumpers go off the Nansen. And if you look at old pictures, the fields below the jump and across the river, they're just filled with cars. And apparently, even the gas stations would run out of gas. Now, the ski jump was used through the 1980s, but the last competition held there was in 1985. And it stopped for a number of reasons, but most notably, the volunteers who had been making these events happen weren't getting old, and professional ski jumpers had better, more modern jumps to go off of. So that's why the big Red Bull-sponsored jump with Sarah Hendrickson in 2017 was big. And people do feel different ways about how this stunt happened. On one hand, it wasn't really publicized to the general public. It was a private event, and that made people upset because it's something they would have liked to witness. But for people who did go, they thought it was pretty amazing. It's kind of strange that I get emotional about it, but it was like you thought something was dead and gone that was very important, and all of a sudden, there it is. It was a freezing, cold, cold morning. It was early, and there wasn't one person there that was complaining about it. It was an an absolutely magical moment to show that that jump came to life. And it was virtually impossible to leave there without wanting more. A few years ago, the state started clearing up the area around the Nansen ski jump to make it look pretty. They put a historical marker near the base. But Scott told me when Sarah Hendrickson went off the jump, it changed their goal. It's kind of evolved. You know, it started with, geez, the jump is all grown in. You can't even see it. And I drive up there and I would be heartbroken. I didn't do anything about it, but I was heartbroken about it. It was gone. You couldn't see it from the road, believe it or not. So, yes, I love the ski jump for various reasons, just because it's an incredible icon of of the North Country, my family connection. But more than that, I I really want to see Berlin be revitalized. So this this project is not just about, you know, hey, we're going to get the the big ski jump going again. We're going to get some really good ski jumpers up there. We're going to hold an event there once a year. We want to bring ski jumping back to the North Country. Scott and some others think that if the ski jump is used in competitions, it could help bring visitors to Berlin in the wintertime. And that would be good for the local economy. And they also want to bring back that spirit and the tradition of Nordic sports. They want local kids to be able to enjoy it too. 
So that's kind of where we are now. The Friends of the Nansen Ski Jump is actively fundraising to get it up and running again. But to do that, they have to make some updates. There's flattening the landing slope, which Peter mentioned. Also, they need new side guards for the deck and for the landing hill. So the total price tag is pretty big, almost $400,000. But they hope that they can begin construction in late summer or fall and to have the jump ready by February of 2020. They aren't exactly sure what type of event they'll have then, but they're pretty confident that the Big Nansen will be in use. Mm -hmm.